This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatter Nation? Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. Speaking of podcasts, if you didn't know, we now have six total shows under Digital Wildcatters. Obviously, this show, Tripping Over the Barrel, Risk Profile, Chuck Yates Needs a Job. We've had all of those for at least, Chuck Yates was the last one that we launched um, prior to the last week. But in the last week, we've launched Margin Call and the Roundup Podcast. So Margin Call is a deep dive into the trading side of the business. It's super interesting. Hosted by Alex Chandy and Big George Periscopopoulos. And the Roundup Podcast, which is the podcast version of the Roundup Newsletter, oil and gas news, renewable news, tech news, whatever else we find interesting, uh, a little commentary there. So that's hosted by Colin and Rob Norton, our buddy out in Denver. So go check those out. Let us know what you think. This week, we were joined by one of the most impressive people that I think we've had on the show. Shoshi Kaganovsky, probably butchered that Shoshi, sorry, uh, founder and CEO of SensoLeak. Uh, you know, this year, more than ever, we've seen Tons of people complaining about the United States, particularly, you know, it's an election year. Everybody has their own opinions. Uh, but it's conversations like what we had with Shoshi in this episode that really put a lot of things in perspective and remind me why I love immigrants so much. Uh, they just know how to work super hard and are willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. And that's exactly, um, you know, what her story was. And I think you guys are going to find this absolutely fascinating and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Uh, really quickly, before we get on the episode, let's just take two minutes and run through our TPH Energy Insight of the Week. So let's uh, piggyback on what we discussed last week. You know, we talked a little bit about carbon capture. Uh, we've wrapped up a pretty controversial election, right? Let's not get too political. But one of the things that seems to be really top of mind, not only during the election, but really across the industry is one ESG initiatives and then really this whole concept of like energy transition. And one of the biggest driving forces is CO2 emissions. And the big question here is what is the plan moving forward and what are some actual viable solutions? There's a lot of questions around that. And, you know, we guys, we talk about a lot of like super high tech solutions, industry problems. But the funny thing is that there's actually some pretty uh, good solutions, I think, that are actually pretty low tech for kind of addressing this issue. Yeah, we actually made this. We haven't released it yet, um, hopefully next week, but we made this dope video about fracking and some of the envir environmental impacts that it has and, um, you know, how it's there's some improbable situations. You know, people are worried about water table getting contaminated and then obviously methane leaks and, um, you know, carbon being released into the atmosphere. And I think our next video that we're going to make is going to be on carbon capture technology, but this uh, TPH insight this week actually brought up a good point that all this carbon capture technology is in its infancy and it may not be that viable of a solution over the next couple of decades. And so you start looking to some of the, the natural solutions for carbon capture, which are the oceans and vegetation. And I think it's kind of an interesting concept. There was this uh, company that went viral on Twitter the other day, all of VC Twitter was talking about it. And they actually plant seaweed farms, these huge mass seaweed farms out in the middle of the ocean. 
And the thesis there is that the seaweed will capture this carbon and then store it in the bottom of the ocean. And I think if I'm not mistaken, like Chris Saka was involved in it and backing it, but they had a lot of uh, VC talk behind them. So it's kind of funny. You look at what VC, Silicon VC usually invest in and it's usually high tech solutions. And here they are looking at, oh, let's grow these seaweed farms in the middle of the ocean. So I think that, you know, if you kind of have this combination of using technology and nature, and then you add an element of financial engineering with carbon credits to make it a viable business model, it, it, some something there, you know, so obviously some people are moving in the space. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot happening in the carbon capture space. Obviously, we're going to keep you guys posted on, you know, new developments, new technologies, things like that, uh, you know, across these TPH Energy Insights. Uh, if you want to go check out TPH's newsletter, uh, you can go to the link in the show notes. You can sign up for that, as well as the D4 Disruption Conference. They're giving out, if you sign up early, they're giving out VR headsets, which is pretty cool. It's like a virtual um, event that they're doing across three cities, Houston, Denver, and Boston, highlighting a bunch of different technologies. So go check that out. There's a link in the show notes for that as well. And uh, without further ado, let's get right into the episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. You know what it is. It's the Willie Gastronist Podcast. What's going on, Colin? What's going on, man? Are you sick? Uh, I didn't ask you that. I just walked in, and all of a sudden, you just sound nasally. No, I think I'm just tired. I was up last night working, mm-hmm. launching a new podcast that's under wraps. I think by the time this podcast goes people out, everybody's really excited about this new podcast. It is, man. I'm pumped for it. So A lot of people already kind of know if you're on Twitter a little bit, maybe. If you're <laughs> not on Twitter, you're going to find out soon. But you were also probably up late working on the world's greatest newsletter, right? Yeah. The world's greatest newsletter. The Roundup was writing that all night. So if you're not signed up for that, make sure to sign up for it. But yeah, I got a lot of interesting things coming out with uh, that and podcast. Actually, we got several podcasts. So anyways, we'll get into that later. We got a guest here with us today. She's probably bored of hearing us talk about what we're doing. So. Since you can't pronounce her name. Yeah. Uh, so we've got <laughs> Shoshi with Senso League. How are you doing, Shoshi? Good. How are you guys? Did he did he say it right? Is it good? He said it Man, perfectly. He it. Shoshi. I'm glad. So cultured. <laughs> so international. I know. It's like that one time we went to Switzerland. I learned French in like three days. He, he tells everyone he's. We were in Switzerland for a few days. He's like, yeah, you know, I started learning French. I was like, he didn't understand. I was like, by, the, t- by the time I was just learning French, we got to the German side, and then I had to learn German. So far, wait, wait so. till I teach you Japanese, so I'll oh have someone to practice goodness. with. Oh, jeez. Are you from Japan? I'm not. I'm from Israel, actually. Okay, but do you know Japanese? I do. I have a master's degree in Asian studies. Oh wow! wow. I pursued what I like. Not what will bring me money. So I'm curious how we ended up here with Sensor League. So there's, <laughs> there's a big gap here. There's a huge story to tell. So uh, really high level, what is Sensor League? And then we'll get into your backstory. Sure. Uh, Sensor League is a software company, a okay. technology startup that wants to prevent or to help reduce the amount of leaks, fires, explosions, or any other critical failures we read about on the news on a daily basis. We focus on oil and gas because we believe, you know, leaks is the number one problem there. And we use AI, machine learning. I know these are words everybody likes to use nowadays. So let me just explain on a high level how we use it. We utilize physics, engineering, and then top it with machine learning because we want to build the best models possible for prediction and prevention so that we can both catch leaks or identify failures very early 
but also possibly prevent them by looking at the behavior of other parameters or other factors that are at play. So for SensorLeak, you know, you guys are using um, artificial intelligence and it's predominantly software. But is there a hardware component to this as well? Good question. And I know a lot of people are mistakenly think so, but no, we only do the software side because we want to remain completely sensor or pipeline or machine agnostic. Mm-hmm. Since we're doing only software, we can hook up to any system. It can be a crude oil pipeline, a wind turbine, a pump, a compressor, a refinery. We don't care. We do big data analysis. So what we care about is data. We don't have any of the sensors. We don't hook up to these sensors. We can connect seamlessly to any SCADA or control center that collects all the data from the field. And then we will crunch the numbers. We will pretty much determine the baseline, how it should be working. And then the algorithm will tell you exactly what's not working, what deviates from the normal operational mode or modes to catch your attention before it escalates into this critical failure yeah. that we all want to avoid. This is this is a little bit contrarian in this space because all the technologies that we've yeah. seen in the leak detection, the leak prevention uh, space is usually coupled with some kind of hardware technology, which is usually proprietary to them. But then you deal with a whole lot of siloed black boxes potentially over probably a long pipeline if you're using multiple vendors. So I think it's I think this is a smart approach to be able to leverage what you're already using and tap into those and to be hardware agnostic and then just be able to combine it all in together. And so you say y'all secret sauce is really that AI, ML, big data crunching. Precisely so. If you're looking for a sales job, I'm hiring. (laughs) But (laughs) because you just summed it up correctly. The secret sauce, I would say, is the combination of everything. So what I've seen a lot in the industry is uh, those, you know, companies who are doing the hardware So I'm thinking to myself, but then you only can help one portion of, you know, the industry, let's say pipelines, and then you need to install your hardware. So the customer needs to shut down the pipeline, let you drill in a sensor, you take the data, you compromise potentially the security or or the safety of, of the operator's assets. Why not just utilize what are what's already there and there's a bunch of sensors there's a bunch of data for years it's it has been collected and why not just build a smarter model including all of that so not just pressure measurement flow temperature let's look at everything together this is one of the basic i would say um um basic milestones that we've reached during our R&D is that, hey, there are so many systems not talking to each other. Imagine you walking into a control center, a million screens, everything is screaming at you, you snooze all the alerts. Wait, why not look at everything as one whole system? Let's see how everything affects each other or is affected by one another. And that's what we came up with. We look at everything holistically so that if you have a problem that is generated by a pump or is generated by a different segment or a branch or whatever in your operations you will know about it before we hear about it on the news or there are casualties or god forbid something happens the ai aspect you know it's nice everybody use it nowadays i don't know how many people really know a lot about the uh, um, opportunities there or the benefits of ai i just say you know what it's nice but you can Utilize AI well only if your basis is solid. 
So if you build a good model, if the data uh, that you sifted through is clean and clear, then your predictive um, capabilities will be much better. So that's what we do first. We, I think, figured out the secret sauce to cleaning the data so that the garbage that comes in is completely out before we build our models. So our main purpose was to increase the accuracy while reducing the false alarms. False alarms are horrible. Not only do they cost a lot of money and take up a lot of your maintenance time, but also they make the operators eventually snooze the alerts all the time. So when the real leak creeps in or occurs, you know, you keep snoozing yeah, it. Yeah, they until get desensitized it, to it. Yeah. You yes. cry wolf too many times, you don't respond. Exactly. So yeah. that's uh, yeah. what we're trying to avoid by creating a very accurate holistic view of your asset right now. Real time is also a keyword. I don't want you to find out tomorrow about a leak that's happening right now, contaminating a field or a water source or whatnot. I want you to know right now when th something is deviating, something is pending or about to happen. So you can attend to it before the critical failure occurs. I've got so many questions, <laughs> but I think we should address the big elephant in the room. How do you go from being from Israel uh, studying uh, international Asian studies, learning Japanese, things like that, to sensor leak. Yeah, I want to know your, your full yeah, like, life yeah, story. So like, yeah, <laughs> go back as far as you want. Fill us in. Oh, gosh. Um, this is a weird combo. Not your regular trajectory, you know, born in America, Ivy League um, <laughs> startup. Um, I was actually born in Russia, in the USSR. And um, being Jewish, we were persecuted my our, our whole life mm -hmm. uh, my mother told me horrible stories about my sister being kidnapped and we had to ransom her yes and we couldn't get into any school because we were jewish so my dad uh, was an entrepreneur he would just open a school for whatever my sister wanted to to, to attend so an art school or a ballet school because she couldn't really get accepted um, my sister is seven years older than I am. Um, and, uh, when I was born, uh, actually my father died when my mom was pregnant with me. So I never got to know him. And when I was five, uh, my mom said enough, uh, we, we need to move to a different place. We cannot be persecuted. My girls will grow up, will not be able to even attend school or will be, you know, beaten up or bullied just because they're Jewish. So, um, we moved to Israel. We relocated when I was five uh, in 1990, and the Israeli trajectory took me on a different path. So school, private schools. On, on that, was was is, is Israel pretty accepting to Jewish people who are from outside of Israel? It's the law, the law of return, I believe the translation okay. would be. Any Jew anywhere in the world, if they want an asylum or to make an aliyah, which uh, translates as ascend, because we say people who left Israel are descending and those who come back to Israel make Aliyah or ascending, um, has the right to return to Israel. And um, as long as, you know, Judaism can be proven. And thankfully, I mean, we, we could have uh, proven with um, four generations back, you know, uh, birth mm -hmm. certificates. And my grandma is a survivor of the Holocaust. And my grandfather was too. So um, this is unfortunate that we, that's how we could prove it. But yes. Oh, well, um, so we can't didn't mean to interrupt you, but that, no, was that's, that's that. important. It's yes. probably the most interesting backstory we've ever had on yeah. the podcast. This, I mean, is, this is extremely 
I mean, just fascinating. I have so many comments about why I love immigrants and why I think a lot of immigrants love the U.S. And I think you're a living example of that. And there's a lot of other countries that have it a whole lot worse, you know, being persecuted for a variety of reasons, whether, I don't know if you consider Judaism to be an ethnicity or religion or probably both. I think it's very unique uh, in, in that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we don't have to deal with as much of that here. Yeah. You have a lot of soft Americans that yeah. take, you know, take a lot of what we have for what? granted. So one thing uh, that uh, Houston deserves kudos for <clears throat> is the melting pot of, mm-hmm. of different nations, immigrants, religions, Houston. and everything here. I really enjoy being here, and I, I, I'm so happy I chose Houston because the normal <laughs> descent from Israel would be to California. People would tell me, go to the Silicon Valley, many Israelis, <laughs> this is where startups belong. I'm like, no, I belong in oil and gas. Even if I have to educate the market, I will be here yeah. and get the most traditional industry to understand. Gosh, little did I know. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a journey, you know, it's a learning mm. curve. Yeah, I love the melting pot that we have in Houston because it provides us with the uh, best food scene yeah. in the world. You know, you can get any type of food Hands that you down. want. It's so yes. good. So I'm a big proponent and activist for, for Houston. All right, so, 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 so you get to Israel. What's next? Yeah, uh, we get to Israel. Um, unfortunately, within two years there, um, we fall into deep poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just so happened. And... Um, my mother, who was a single parent and took my sister and me, her parents, to Israel, she was very ill as well. Uh, she's trained as a doctor. She used to be a surgeon in, in Russia, and she had her own um, kindergarten chain. She was the first one in late 80s to recognize um, learning disabilities, and she opened preschools for those kids. Now, in Russia, it's like, you're just stupid, and your kid is retarded. Mm -hmm. He or she does not belong with any normal school. And my mom had a different approach. She has four PhDs in people. So one of her PhDs education, in addition to a doctorate in in, uh, medicine and physics, and she said, no, 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 these kids are completely normal. It's just that, you know, a certain process in the brain, and they need a certain... Uh, a different place and she opened a couple of, of those um, chains so she was very busy back back in Russia but um, in Israel when we came she didn't know the language even though even though she knows a bunch of other languages she didn't know Hebrew and back then it was like either you know Hebrew or you cannot get your medical uh, license um, to practice well she tried many things we came from money basically we were really affluent um, but in two years it all drained out and uh turns out that a family member in russia kind of lost all our money so um my mom was 45 i was nine and she couldn't find a job uh or well only like in in washing dishes or you know cleaning or stuff like that for phds right Mm -hmm. and i was nine i caught the language very quickly i was five when i came there right and i assimilated very quickly my sister um she was um practicing something different I guess it was harder for her being 14 and immigrant and an an immigrant so I took initiative and I started working at nine Um, I got accepted to a Chinese restaurant to wash dishes and that's what I was doing and going to school in, in in addition to that at some point I I guess it was 10 or 11 I took the family's finances or the family's budget on myself so I was working I was making the money and I was paying the bills I was 
really the first one to learn Hebrew. So I would go and take care of the administrative things. So pension for my grandma, stuff for my mom. She was, um, she had bad diabetes that was only, that started being treated only when we moved to Israel. So that, you know, and um, my sister's applications for school, and I was like nine or 10, right? I was in, in uh, elementary school. But uh, that, that taught me a lot, uh, quite a lot. So um, ever, si- ever since, um, I guess I was nine, I was the CEO of my family. Mm-hmm. So that's my first startup. <laughs> and uh, until this very day, I guess. Um, so yeah, took care of everything. And um, when I was, um, so the trajectory in Israel kind of puts you on the path to um, an army service, which is mandatory. Boys, Mm -hmm. girls, you know, you have to go to the army. Depends on what you do. That's what the most important thing. Um, There are levels of like service, right? So um, if you get accepted to um, an elite unit where you go through a lot of screening and exams and whatnot, then it's way easier for you afterwards because the universities and the employers know that you've been screened by one of the best armies in the Mm. world, then you are worthy. And I decided I want to go to an elite unit and serve as a combat soldier. So like the level of Navy SEALs or or, um, uh, Marines, I would say. I got accepted. I knew five languages back then. And I was um, serving on the border of Syria and Lebanon. So north part of Israel with the UN forces. So I was fortunate enough to be screened and serve in one of, I guess, the top six units in the whole Israeli Defense Force. Um, that gave me a lot, but you know, um, it's a, it's quite a, um, uh, hot border, I would say. So when you're 18 and you're in charge of the whole Northern part of Israel, it kind of gives you a perspective. You grow up fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I thought that, you know, I grew up earlier because I had to carry my family on my shoulders when this happened, it was another step, I guess, towards, um, entrepreneurship. And um, I can remember many things that uh, made me, put me in a situation where I had to make a decision that literally was life and death, not just mine, but my team's as well. Um, So that taught me quite a lot. Uh, But after I, um, you know, I got out of the army with honors, I went to school. Um, There was a little war in between, but um, I started school and... Six degrees later, none of which is engineering, machine learning, computer science, <laughs> <laughs> I found myself. So what, what six degrees did you go through? Oh, don't even ask. It seems like a family thing. You said your mom had like four PhDs, yeah, yeah. you have six degrees. When she I'm, said I'm, her her path was, you know, nonlinear, I wasn't expecting it to be like this. This, this, is, really this is, yeah, this is... Well, Insane. I'm the black sheep of the family. I don't yeah. have a PhD yet, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and not not a, not a doctorate in, in medicine. But uh, did yeah. you did you start university in Israel? Yes. Okay. Um, all my degrees there. I, I obviously funded my own uh, school, so I was working in parallel for jobs, and had uh, double majors. Um, the thing is that I could have several degrees because, um, so for example, one of them was a BA bachelor's in, um, Japanese, like Asian studies. Mm -hmm. But during my second year of my bachelor's, the Dean came to me and said, well, you're obviously top of your class and we're opening this master's in Japanese. Do you want to join? Even though you haven't finished your BA yet. I'm like, sure. And within two years, I finished both BA and MA in the same time. So oh, wow. that's like two degrees. Yeah. 
Uh, same with the, my other's degree, my other's... Um, Why did you decide to go that path? The Japanese route? Yeah. Well, I started with like um, law and economics. And um, you know what? I read so much about it beforehand. It was a little boring to me the first mm -hmm. year. And I said, you know what? If I'm paying so much money and I'm in school, then I better learn something new. And I'm like, okay, what's going to be completely new to me? Now, I'm such a nerd <laughs> that in between classes, I would smuggle into other lectures <laughs> of, of other facu faculties. I know, nerd plus. <laughs> but, um, and I smuggled in one of those um, lectures about Japan and the culture. And I, and I see the characters and I'm like, this is going to be a challenge. This is what I want. This is completely new to me. And I thought maybe Chinese, maybe Japanese, but I was drawn to the Japanese culture, to what was presented in the class. And I'm like, this is mine. And I dropped um, law and economics and all that. And I moved to um, Asian studies. And I'm like, what will go well with that? I will not be able to make money out of <laughs> Japanese knowledge. And I said, well, a backup plan would always be um, languages and teaching. So I took English, technically literature, and then um, teaching diploma and kind of mixed up everything together and had fun. You know what? I, I really liked it. The one thing you said is that you, you back then you spoke five languages. How many languages do you speak now? Six and a half, I guess. Six and a half. What, what languages? So, so English, Hebrew, Russian, Russian Japanese, Arabic. Four. Arabic, okay. Um, and the half would be half Spanish I just started and half Ukrainian, which I can understand 70%, but speak like 30%. Yeah. So I don't know how to consider that, <laughs> but 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 five languages: reading, speaking, listening, um, all, all the skills, I guess. I never feel more incompetent than when I meet somebody who speaks like more than three languages. I know it's one thing it's that like, I hate about America. That I can speak one like that we learn English. Yeah, and Spanish. It's so funny because Spanish should be easy for Americans to learn because there's you know so much underlying. Um, between the two, but yeah, I'm just like, I'm over here. I'm like, fuck, I feel stupid talking. <laughs> okay. So, so, so you're, so, okay. So you speak a million languages, you have a million degrees. Where did the oil and gas part come into play? Like how did, no, not even oil and gas, like, or the data, the, the, the software, the, the startup, there's so much, yeah. there's so much still that we need to get to. Yeah. Well, uh, the fun, the fun part is that um, since I was working uh, ever since I was nine and running the family budget, I don't know how, probably God's help, but I started saving without letting anyone know because I didn't have to. I mm -hmm. was running the budget. And when I got out of the army and got, you know, some uh, benefits that you get along uh, with your service or when you um, discharged, I, um, okay, 2006 was the, the year I got out of the army. And 2006, we had a little um, incident, what we call the Second Lebanese War. So missiles were coming, tens of them a day um, from Lebanon on the northern side of Israel, where mm -hmm. my house is, that got hit, by the way, by a missile. Thankfully, we weren't there. And a lot of people were flooding. They were like taking their kids and some belongings they had into their car and moving to Tel Aviv, central Israel, or the south part. And they were selling their apartments and their homes for 20, 25% of their worth. Now, I've been saving since I was nine. So I took all that money and bought five apartments, renovated them myself. Um, don't be fooled by the nails I have now. <laughs> and this was a hobby of mine. What happens when you knock down this wall? <laughs> and get some furniture. And within a year, I started making profit out of it. 
And after five years, four years, I sold it for like 1200% profit. Awesome. That's how I got myself out of poverty, really. Um, collecting the rent and then selling because, um, again, God's help, my town turned to be one of the two most um, sought after places. <clears throat> so the um, valuation of the places I got was really higher. Uh, made my first million and then started investing into startups. And I don't know if you guys heard about the Israeli innovation. Um, I've heard a lot about it. the startup scene in Israel is supposed to be second to only Silicon Valley. From exactly. Right here. Yeah, it's I was going to Silicon I, Valley of Europe. I've been meaning to ask about that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about that because mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people are aware that Israel has a very budding startup scene. And I mean, we've had several reach out to be on the podcast. And so I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Sure. So um, I guess Israel had no choice to be innovative. It's um, Israel is only 70, what, one or two years old. And within very few uh, years uh, as of its establishment um, in 1948, surrounded by, let's say, only enemies and, you know, having nothing but uh, swamps around the country. Um, and after World War II, a lot of immigrants and survivors of the Holocaust came to Israel to rebuild themselves. So this population had no choice but to either build a country or lose. Yeah. And that's why I think one of the reasons why Israel is so innovative until this very day. It's just you have no choice. You have no allies around you and either you or them, you know. So that's how it all started, uh, in my humble opinion. In addition to that, the army service, which is mandatory. So it does teach you or your whole life you're trained that this is your place. This is what you need to protect and you need to grow. There's no room for you to just, you know, sit back and relax. You need to make a life for yourself. No one else will make it for you. Um, so that that was the um, the approach, and that's that's what I was absorbing while growing up. So that's why the military service was really significant to me, and I was preparing for that, knowing that hey, I want to serve and make it a um, a very um, uh, impactful service, and I want to learn. and And this is this is the approach. Uh, so we constantly also. Um, Jewish studies or I think Israelis, um, when we're in school or just in general, we're actually encouraged to not go with the flow or not follow the, the trend. I mean, we're encouraged to ask questions. We're encouraged to, I won't say disobey, but to counter what our teachers say or, or not dispute, but I would say discuss or ask why or how or how to make it better. We like are that. trained not to accept things as every because just because you know, so that's uh, another thing I think that Israelis um, are are encouraged to do, and and I, I think I still have it. So when I came to the US, I realized that I'm I'm very direct. So I always say, hey, 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 I'm not aggressive. I'm not impolite. I'm just Israeli. <laughs> so that, because you know that, that's that's a cultural thing. Uh, we say what's on our mind. We argue we would haggle we would you know try to get things differently because this is how we raised yeah and this is part of a huge part of the israeli startup scene and um if you heard of 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 ways the gps mm -hmm. app yeah mm -hmm. israeli uh, oh, is really? i, didn't know, that. Google. I oh, know. know 
the USB flash drive, the email actually was invented in Israel, the at. Um, That's wild. Cherry tomatoes. And there's like so many other inventions. And um, if you ever had a laptop with an Intel inside sticker, that's from Israel. That's Ashkelon in Israel, I think, or um, um, that's crazy. Southern side. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and many, many others. Wigs.com, building website in yeah. Israeli. Monday.com, an Israeli um, startup. Reviews Monday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, sometimes you look at the founders' names. Oh, <laughs> Israeli, Israeli, Israeli. And um, I can give you so many other examples. People just, uh, I guess, don't know it. And maybe Israelis do not really push the Israeli side of their startup ahead. Yeah. It's, it's about the technology. It's about the innovation. We either want to make things better or to find solutions to problems that exist and need solutions. Yeah. How much do you think, wasn't uh, Adam Newman, wasn't he Israeli? Oh, he is. Do you think he, he, he pulled the Israeli card and was able to like sell the vision? I don't know which cards he pulled. <laughs> he pulled <laughs> we, right we work is himself. a weird story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I met him and I know his sister too, but um, no comment yeah, about no WeWork. Comment <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, so it's interesting because I didn't know. And like, even if you were to tell me that Monday.com was an Israeli company, I would have guessed that was from Silicon Valley. And so it's interesting that, you know, that isn't promoted more um, from like a marketing standpoint for Israel, right? It's like, hey, we, you know, these are Israeli products Mm -hmm. and people that are building them. Um, So it's interesting because, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley, that's almost the opposite. You know, Silicon Valley wants you to know that Silicon Valley made that and it came from there, right? So I find that interesting. But um, you remember that one startup that wants to come on the podcast, the... um, the drone and they got that automated drone that has its own garage and they can, oh, man, we wanted to get them on yeah, for a long time. They're, they're from Israel really? and yeah, they have, Who's I, that? I'll arrange it. I can't, um, I can't, I can't think of the name. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but Houston? yeah, no, they're, so I think they have an office in Houston, but they're, they're headquartered in Israel. And anyways, it's funny because Jake and I used to have some stripper wells up in Oklahoma and we always said, Hey, it'd be great if you just had this drone that came out of this little garage and you know, every day it would just take a quick video and send it to you in a gift. That way you could see what was going on on your, like, on like your a Roomba, wells. but a drone, yeah. like yeah. Roomba's going to plug themselves back in. Why can't a drone come out, fly out, take yeah. a gift like you said. So it's a small image. Take, go back, take a look, go at, back in the garage, take a, let the door take a look. shut. Anyways, they you built know? this and I just thought it was cool as Hell. And I think yeah, I know who you're talking about. At the time, yeah. I thought it was interesting that they came from Israel. But then when I really started digging in, I was like, Israel has a ton of technology coming out of there. So it's good. Uh, Especially drones. Yeah. So, okay. Now, man, I don't think I've ever taken as many notes as I have today. Uh, like on page two That's of notes. It's a fascinating story so yeah. far. Do you, have a, a do you have a book? Yeah. I was going to say, you should have I'm a book. I'm writing one. Awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to read it because this is just all Side insane, note, I just so. started Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, this morning. What Fantastic. is it? Fantastic. Green Lights. He took a diary for 42 years. Oh, nice. And he went back and re- like went out in the desert for 52 days in solitude and came out with a book. <laughs> Have you That's, seen uh, Silicon Valley? The, I love that show. So <laughs> last time someone went to the desert to be alone, got stuck in the bathroom. Remember? Oh yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say that I look like T.J. Miller. And I was yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, you do look like T.J. Miller. <laughs> okay, so let's come back to Sense of League now. Yes. How did you know? How did you get involved with oil and gas? How did you make it to Houston? You know, before we got on the mic, you told me briefly 
that you've been here for two and a half years that uh, when you came here, Harvey hit, you came and helped with Harvey. So I want to hear that story as well. But let's talk about how you came up with the idea for Sensoleak, how you identified this problem that the industry has, how you got down to Houston, how you helped out during Harvey. It's a lot of things Jesus to talk Christ. about. But <laughs> no, no, I need to <laughs> make notes. Yeah, she needs notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I got into oil and gas completely by accident, but let me back up first. So in 2010, um, while investing and mentoring startups and being on boards and whatnot, I decided I want my own startup. And I had this idea that if you combine a few things, you can actually uh, uh, identify the small def uh, defects before they escalate into critical failures. So I had this aha moment uh, that if you treat a data uh, or, or sets of data or large sets of data in a certain way, you can come up with something. And I said, well, I started developing something very uh, kind of immature, uh, gooey, and uh, I tested it on helicopter engines. So helicopters are very dangerous. They have only one engine. If the engine is dead, you're dead. That's why I don't write in them. <laughs> Smart. But they do transmit a lot of data, all aircraft. And I'm like, huh, mm. big data, dangerous thing. Let's see if we can predict or prevent some failures. And what happened is that my first prototype was able to give the pilot a six-minute alert to abort before the plane crashed, if it was something that cannot be fixed while in route. Huge success. I'm like, okay, so it works. Now what do I do with that? I started, you know, I didn't... The, That's like a massive achievement. You just like brushed right over it. Like, I, I know, I know. Because I can see people's I, life like six minutes before it works. Like, I know, it works. It works. And I'm like, oh, okay, thing. okay, but I don't want to do helicopters. What do I want to do with that? <laughs> Where would it be really like impactful? And I don't want to, you know, the Israeli. You didn't want to like, go like sell that to Boeing or Bell. <laughs> exactly. I didn't, I didn't want to do, I didn't, I'm like, I don't want to deal with those guys, Boeing and all of that. <laughs> so I better go to what? Oil it's only a multi-billion dollar idea. It's not good enough. <laughs> I know. I, I say I was young and stupid. I guess now I'm just stupid. <laughs> but um, I decided I want to do, you know, I'm a millennial. I must have a purpose. I want to do something meaningful with that. What damages can we prevent? Like earthquake, earthquakes or, or, or explosions or something. And I'm like, okay, I'll try it on, on different things. What else can I try it on? I'm like, okay, wind turbines looks like a good one. And also I could find some in Israel and some in Europe. Worked. I could really not prevent, but identify a small defect very early. And then I started um, using this on other machines, rotating machinery. It all worked. And then one of my co-R&D clients, they're like, can you develop something or do you have something like this for pipelines? I'm like, no, no idea what pipelines are in Israel. It's not really a big uh, industry, but how hard can it be? Damn, <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> but I said, you know, I said it, I will deliver. So I'm like, okay, I hired a bunch of, you know, subject matter experts, flow assurance engineers, pipeline engineers. Like, can you please tell me where is the norm? They're like, oh, in oil and gas, no norm. There's like turbulent <laughs> regimes, steady regimes. When it's turbulent, you cannot do pretty much anything. Or then like, why? <laughs> but uh, I worked, uh, I started working on pipelines. I said, okay, if oil and gas is that difficult, let me start with water. One steady state, you know, one density. And what do you know? I could identify a leak two weeks before it happened with a Netherlands company on a big main. And I'm like, oh, so something can be done on pipelines. So let us see what. From here to there, you know, I started doing some research and um, 
managed to uh, come up with a product that actually works on oil pipelines and multi-phase and all sorts of uh, mm -hmm. uh, liquid pipelines. And uh, 2016 was the first year I actually opened the company. So from 2010 to 2016, I was running R&D without an entity. Why? Because I was consulting and seeing so many startups fall just because they opened in the wrong time. Once you have an entity, money flies out. Lawyers, accountants, taxes, blah, 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 before you even had a chance to bring some money in. Mm -hmm. And I said, wait, when I open an entity, I want a product that's proven and commercializable. I want a client so that we're profitable from day one. And when I go to investors, I bring everything on a silver platter. Yeah. So 2016, it Smart. happens. I had my first client. We signed an agreement in Israel with the largest and pretty much the only operator. And I started traveling 250 days. Australia, Japan, Canada, I was knocking on doors. And I'm like, hey, here's what I do. Really? Or what are you talking about? Prediction, prevention. I'm like, no, 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 let me just show you. They're like, okay, show me. I'm like, yeah, but I charge for that. So 200K, please. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess I was nagging so badly. They actually <laughs> let me do that, like large companies. And uh, then I decided I need to move from Israel. I cannot be traveling. You know, I'm, all I know is my suitcases and I don't even know what's happening anymore, what time it is. Like, um, and, um, but we won a bunch of awards. So we were recognized as one of the 10 best IoT companies in Israel by the chief scientist, which is, which is a big deal. He took us on a delegation to Japan. Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, took us on a delegation to Australia as one of the best uh, energy companies. So we got a, a bunch of recognition, but it was still kind of early four years ago. Right now, it's like hype. Everybody says AI. Everybody wants it, knows it, or wants it. Mm -hmm. So um, I decided I, ne I need to have a, a, a different base. And I said, okay, Canada or US or Australia. And I decided US. Like, I loved America ever since I first, the f I watched the first episode of Full House <laughs> <laughs> when I was like six. It's exactly like, what America's like is. I know, I know, right? And Good old like, genuine American classic right like, there. I'm going to be friends with Michelle. <laughs> um, and by the way, we're like, we were born the same year, the Olsen twins and myself. So that was my, my dream. I mean, I'm going to live there. And, and I'm going to meet Uncle Jesse and we're going to go on a date. He's going to sing for me. Uh, sure. Um, anyways, um, so I said, okay, U.S. We're in the U.S. I'm like, okay, oil and gas, Houston. And I started telling people, hey, I'm going to go to, to, to Houston. I'm going to move there. I'm like, Houston? Why do you? I mean, I don't know why Houston has such a better reputation, but we need to change that. And I'm like, no, 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 because oil and gas. They're like, go to California or, or Austin even. But why Houston? I'm like, this is where all my clients are. And I love Houston. Little didn't know about floods, traffic, <laughs> and all that. That's just a couple of the problems. Every city has problems. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the, the date was August 2017. I'm already packed up. And I'm like, okay, I'm moving. Then I'll bring my dogs. I have a lot of things figured out. And um, like I said, I was supposed to come on a weekend of Harvey. And um, Harvey happened on Friday, technically. Uh, my flight was scheduled uh, on a Saturday. And... I, I remember looking at my suitcases and my luggage and everything is ready. And I'm, I'm watching, um, not the news, it was actually on, on a laptop or, or a phone. I'm watching American news and I'm like, what the hell is happening? In my head, Houston is my home now. And it's like my community got hurt. And I see people like on the streets and lines of people without homes, you know, and all the damage. And I'm like, I, I cannot just sit here in Israel, you know, watch the sunset. I really need to do something. 
So I donated as much as I could to uh, FEMA, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. FEMA, FEMA. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's not enough. I need to do something. And I started calling my uh, airline. And they're like, put me somewhere around San Antonio. Put me in Dallas. Put me in Louisiana. I'll drive. I already drove several times from Louisiana to, to Houston. And um, they're like, no, we cannot. We cannot. I mean, and then on Tuesday, um, airports opened here. Mm -hmm. And I could land. And I remember that... Um, it was the first time I, I rented the car. It was the first time I, the, the, the roads were um, empty, like from the airport. Mm -hmm. And then you get stuck, you know, around Memorial. <laughs> yeah. Because, and um, I um, randomly went to different churches, synagogues and whatnot and said, hey, I want to volunteer. They assigned me to a group of people. We went to homes, tore down walls, floors, doors, removed furniture. I don't know who the people were. I don't know. Right now, I don't know where in Houston it was because I, don't, I didn't know the city. And mm -hmm. I just remembered the first one was Kingwood area. Yeah. Second mm -hmm. Baptist, like large church. Yeah. I remember the campus. And I always had in my car blankets and uh, uh, bottled uh, water mm -hmm. so that I can give, you know, to random people. And um, so during the day, we would go and, you know, help people in homes. And during the nights, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., I would do a um, shift with the Red Cross I believe in a church in Copperfield, there were there were 287 people there. Um, it was like a shelter. Yeah. Um, and I was, uh, it was um, as, as hard as it was to see people, you know, uh, who lost everything and who had very little even before that. What kept me going and what made me really happy was to see the trucks loaded with donation, don donated clothes like everything every single item from toothbrushes to child books children's books they were just bringing this to the shelter and i'm like so there are good people in the world i yeah. think that's so important to remember right now because so my family lives up in kingwood and luckily they didn't flood or anything but uh whenever harvey had hit i'd known a guy with a boat and so we'd actually went and dropped a boat on highway 59 in like 35 feet of water to go help and and the problem that we saw over there was that there was so many people helping that it was like there was madness because there was no communication. Like cell towers were down, the the police station had flooded, things like that. But I think in a, now when it seems to me that the nation, or at least what the media and social media are telling you, is more divided than ever, I think we need to look back on times like Harvey, particularly in our community here, where we had people from everywhere, from a lot of different cities, a lot of different states around coming. You know, Colin was out on a John boat for like, 48 hours straight. I got a staph you know. infection. <laughs> yeah, I got a staph infection. You know, I think we saw the best of people. And I think that Houston especially is, is full of just great people. Despite like everything that you see and despite everything that, that you're hearing on social media and stuff. But I think we have a great, great community. And I think it shows in times like that, that regardless what your political beliefs and shit like that is like, it doesn't matter. Like we're all in this together in this community. And I yeah. think we need to remember that, especially in times like now. But you brought up a good point, you know, talking about the external facing publicity that Houston has, because people are like, why would you move to Houston, move to California? I've lived in Houston for six years now and I'm sold on Houston. I love Houston. I think it's the city of opportunity. Just, I, I think it's the coolest place in America right now because of the diverse population that we have here. There's so many different people with different experiences. And I think that's ex very, I mean, it's just very special in the way that it all melts together. 
But you look at Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Harvey was like the nail in the coffin for me. I was like, that's why I'm sold on Houston, just because it was a very special time. It's even hard to articulate how special it was unless you were out there helping people and just seeing the abundance. You know, I have a story that I haven't really got to tell and I'll have to tell it some other time. But I mean, we had trailers from West Texas oil field service companies that they were in contact with me, just sending trailers and trailers full of supplies for the shelters. I mean, there's just special time, right? And you may not see that in other places of the United States or the world. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes Houston and the surrounding areas so special. It was amazing because like the people I was sharing the shifts in the Red Cross with in the Copperfield uh, Church, none of them was from Houston, New Jersey, North Carolina, (laughs) um, Washington, D.C. and Washington State. And, you know, I'm like, and you came here? Yeah, we're a disaster relief uh, team. And that's how I joined the Red Cross uh, Disaster Relief. Um, Yeah, we're we're just here to help. And people left their jobs, their families, their everything to come and volunteer for people they don't know. You know, and um, I don't know, probably some of them were paid or at least for the travel, Mm -hmm. but technically we weren't. Volunteering is all about not getting paid, you know. The reward is the help you give. Yeah. And that, I was sold, uh, I guess, in Houston back then too. I'm like, wow. Lines of people, I'm like, are they waiting for food or what? And now I volunteer with the Houston Food Bank. So I'm like, okay, were those lines for for food? No, those are lines to volunteer. People are waiting in line to be assigned to an assignment to go and help other people. Yeah. It just, I I feel right now goosebumps and and my heart kind of widens. I'm like, yes, this is the world we live in. This is the world we should be living in. And yes, to your comment, I guess the media wants to divide the Mm -hmm. people or wants to make things more interesting, quote unquote, yeah. but people are people. I mean, yeah. I'm pretty sure that even though, you know, the, the different political views or whatever differences we have, when Harvey hits, we're all in this together. Yep. It doesn't matter if you vote for this or for that, or you like this or that, or you're against this or that. People will always be people. So Absolutely. it's important to remember, I hope Harvey will never come to prove this. Yeah. But if we are aware of that, maybe we'll do something ourselves proactively to get the nation together, united yeah. rather than. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that was a hell of a welcoming party for you coming to Houston. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, Hey, Lisa set the expectations for you that you're going to have to deal with flooding here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting too, how you said all your clients are here because there's even, <clears throat> we have friends that are startup founders in oil and gas and, you know, they're based out of Austin or DFW and, you know, they're making weekly trips to Houston. So I always give them, I always give them some flack. I'm like, all your clients are here. Why are, why are you not based here? And, you know, you wouldn't have to be driving down here every week. And Talent. so, you know, I think it's really important to be here and to help contribute to this ecosystem that's growing in Houston. Um, so one, I think that's really cool. Um, you know, let, let's go back to the technology real quick before we end this podcast. How are you guys seeing adoption in the midstream space? You know, I'm assuming that's where the majority of your focus is, is on the pipelines and then I'm sure refineries and things of that nature. You know, what's the, what's the reaction from these midstream companies? Cause I find it pretty I find it pretty fascinating because every other um, pipeline detection, you know, I've seen people using artificial intelligence and machine learning, but they always incorporate some physical hardware, right? And that can be a barrier. Whereas you, it's like, hey, there's really low, low risk, 
right to going with you guys because mm-hmm. it's just a software play. So does that give you all an advantage in terms of adoption? I think so. Yeah. And um, I, I was approached by several sensor companies that wanted to kind of embed sensor into their sensors. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I think the sale would be much easier when I go to a prospective client and I say, hey, seamless plug and play connection to your SCADA and just hook up to whichever server that collects your data. Or, hey, I need to drill into your pipeline, take the data to myself. You will not know what's happening and uh, uh, compromise your security. So my, I think my approach is easier, not to mention that not only pipelines, I can monitor everything they have in their assets. So we're asset agnostic, right? Sensor agnostic. It can be pipelines, pumps, compressors, anything in their network that correlates with uh, all the other things. And that's, that's what should be easy. I mean, obviously, everybody is scared about sharing data. And that's why I say, you know what? You keep your data to yourself. Here's here's the deal. Here's the real, um, I think, uh, a benefit we offer is that we are not going to interfere with any processes, procedures. We're not even going to demand being instead of your current system, but in addition to. And then you choose by yourself. Let me show you how I can improve your decision making without adding any hardware, without adding you any costs or any headache, anything like that. So let me analyze what you already have. Maybe there's like a little something we can do with the uh, crunching of numbers or, or cleaning the data for you with your existing sensors and the, all the noise that they, they create, all of that. You know what, let's do an assessment of what you really need in order to improve your operations. So I guess that that's been helpful. I mean, mm-hmm. we've been really knocking wood doing well until uh, the virus came and mm-hmm. the oil and gas price wars. Mm-hmm. Right now, the industry is um, hurting a little bit, so we want to help. We're offering pretty much free service. I mean, to any company that wants to save, that wants to improve somehow, but most of our clients and prospective clients are in a um, disarray, I would say, you know, reorganizing and all the uncertainty and the elections and all of that. So I'm trying not to bug them too much right now. Stay stay in touch, but not too much because people are completely insecure right now yeah. about so many things. Well, it's hard to sell products when your client's busy putting out fires, right? And yes. they never have the time to sit down and look at, yeah. you know, solutions because like I've got to deal with this over exactly. here. And so it makes it, it makes it difficult. But on the other hand, you know, I look at technologies like this and, you know, there's so much pressure from ESG initiatives and things of this nature oh. where investors and companies, you know, they have to, you have to do something that's environmentally friendly, right? And so you look at technologies like this, and I'm a huge proponent of technologies like this because whenever everyone talks about clean energy transition, they go straight to solar, wind, geothermal, hydrogen fuel cell technology. And it's like they just completely bypass looking at how can we make oil and gas a cleaner industry and there's so much room for opportunity to do that and it's like right here you have a technology a machine learning application that can crunch this data and predict a leak two weeks before it happens like that's a big deal mm-hmm. it's a big deal and if you can prevent you Is know intrusive yeah you know i mean the problem that everyone has with pipelines is oh the pipeline leaks well guess what we have the technology now to where we can predict and prevent those from happening and I think that's extremely important. And so, you know, I see companies like SensoLeak, and I think you guys are really positioned, you know, to help the industry and help the environment and safety. help these. 
safety, you know, and help these funds with their mm-hmm. ESG initiatives. So it's a good, good place to be in. You know, I know it's tough right now just with everything that's going on, just like for every other startup in the oil and gas space, you know, everyone's any, any other space. Yeah. You know, everyone, everyone's got a startup in this industry, you know, it's just fighting, fighting to survive right now. And it's about staying solvent so that you can, um, you know, be around long enough. But, um, you know, if someone's listening to the podcast today, you know, we have a lot of people in the midstream and downstream space that are working with these assets, where can they find uh leak? You know, what's the website? Can they find you on LinkedIn? How can they get in contact to learn more? Yeah, I guess um, Google nowadays <laughs> yeah. rules all. You write either Shoshi or Sensoleak, and I guess the first thing that pops up is, I think, my LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I have more than 23,000 connections. Wow. So I guess most of the hits got, come from there. Yeah, more than That's, me. Sensolink.com or or any, you know, or or just to call you guys and you will get our our data out. We're here to help. We really want to make sure the industry revives quickly or recovers quickly. Yeah. And we're here to do anything we can. Uh, Shout out to my amazing team that I'm nothing without them really supporting and very um, conscious about, you know, doing whatever we can for the industry. Um, at this stage, I would say that, um, I'm trying to, to give, uh, more hope to people. Uh, people keep asking me, well, the industry is in such a bit bad space. Maybe you will pivot, maybe do something else. I'm like, you know what, in addition to what I do voluntarily for fighting human trafficking, I am not moving one step away from the oil and gas industry. We're united. And if we bail out on our own industries, when it's tough, then we're, we do not deserve to be here when it's nice and, you know, flourishing. So I stand fully behind my industry and I would say, do not worry. Yes, it's mayhem. It's a bloodbath right now, but it will pass too. 100%. I'm going to tell you right now, you're my favorite podcast guest that we've had. So I love that message. Do you tell to it to all the 100%. No, no, I don't. No, I don't. Um, this Your story is just absolutely incredible. Um, I love how much you support the industry and just that comment that you made there. I mean, look, there's a lot of weekends out there right now that are pivoting and going to other industries and guess what? They'll be running back when times are good, but it's the people that are building businesses in this downturn that are going to, um, reap the reward Lots of on their side. You know. So Lots of love it. Love what you guys are doing at Sense of Leak. If you're listening, make sure to check them out, um, and get some more information on what they're doing. Jake, I'll let you take take it. You're a complete badass. Like Colin said, this is this is, this is a great episode. Uh, we've we haven't had as uh, many female founders on the show as I would like. Um, just just kind of how it's happened, but all the ones that I have have been amazing, and you guys have completely blown me away. So thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, if you like the show and you want some more content from us, like we mentioned in the beginning of the show. We've got the roundup going out every week, which is a roundup of oil and gas news, tech news, put in some clean tech stuff, some really dank memes, occasional <laughs> videos, occasionally make fun of people, you never know. Uh, so go check that out on the website. Uh, sign up, goes out every week. And we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, come, come.